welcome to today's episode of Boost in the Big Screen, your movies review and discussion podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Joshua Tracing. And I am Corbin Miller. And we are here today to talk about more Oscar nomination, our Oscar nominated pictures, I should say, with uh, the film Spencer and the film Nightmare Alley. Corwin Heller, where would you like to start? England or the carnival? Let's do the carnival. All right. All right. So Nightmare Alley came out in 2021, was directed by Guillermo del Toro. Screenplay was written by Guillermo del Toro and Kim Morgan based on the book by William Lindsay Gresham. Uh, the film stars Bradley Cooper, Kate Blanchett, and Tony Collette with appearances from Willem Dafoe, Richard Jenkins, Rooney Mara, Ron Perlman, and everybody else you could possibly think of. Um, yeah, a lot, lot, of, lot, of, lot of guys, a lot of guys, a lot of, lot, of, lot of people you know. The film, uh, I, oh, estimated budget. Do we have a budget on this bitch? Let's see. 60 million, 60 million dollar budget. Uh, I see the box office as 36.8 million. So underperformed in the box office. But again, COVID movie. Uh, this is currently on HBO Max, I think. So not hard for it to um, not, not like wild that it underperformed by box office, which is ever increasingly becoming an unreliable de- definition of how well the, the film did. But as, as unreliable as it was prior, it has only become more so, I guess I should say. It's going to be very uh, weird to look back on. Yeah, it's like, weird oh, giving Doom all this grossed caveats. like six million bucks. Yeah, right. Like the biggest movie of the year grossed like nine dollars, unless it's a Marvel movie. And that's the other part of the thing about this is that this movie came out at like in like, I think the same weekend as Spider-Man 2. Um, so obviously also lost out for many box office uh foot traffic or, or intrigue, whatever, to, you know, Spider-Man 2, which was the biggest movie of the year. I don't see a tagline, which is fine. Not every movie needs one, folks. Yeah. Uh, anyway, this film is currently nominated for four Oscars. This is nominated for Best Motion Picture of the Year for Guillermo del Toro, J. Miles Dale, and Bradley Cooper. It's nominated for Best Achievement in Production Design for Tamara Deverell and Shane Vio. I'm guessing there. Sorry, guys. Best Achievement in Costume Design for Luis Sequiera and Best Achievement in Cinematography for Dan Lauston. I think this was my... No, this was your pick. Yes, uh, yeah, this was your pick. Oh, uh, real quick. This film is about an ambitious carny with a talent for manipulating people with a few well-chosen words hooks up with a female psychiatrist who is even more dangerous than he is. So Corwin, your pick. Tell me about it. Uh, This was a perfectly fine movie. I don't think it was best picture worthy. Um, This is not my least favorite Guillermo del Toro movie. It's definitely not. Well, I want to say definitely not my favorite. I don't really have a favorite, but regardless, it was fine. It just didn't move the needle much for me. You know, it was definitely not the movie to watch during breakfast. Um, That was very clear uh, from the start. Um, But, you know, around lunchtime, this turned into a very great movie. Um, I think Rooney Mara was Rooney Mara. I think Bradley Cooper was good, but you know, 
at the same time, Bradley Cooper. Um, this is the least scary uh, Willem Dafoe movie I've seen in a little while, but otherwise, I don't really have much to say. Visually, I thought it was great, um, but that was really the only big plus that I kind of was stuck with. You you need to go back to taking yeah. notes so you have more stuff to say, my friend. I know. It happens every time. Yeah. Uh, I, I really enjoyed this movie. Uh, this is my second time seeing it. I saw it actually in theaters. Yeah. So uh, 14 or $18 of, of that $36 million is is yours truly's right here, big guy. Uh, and I guess I contributed on the back end, too, because I just watched it on HBO Max again to, in preparation for this. Uh, and I enjoyed it thoroughly both times. Um, it, it's tough to to talk about it in the context of best picture because it's kind of an amorphous concept uh, especially this year where the crop of movies has been so bad i think this certainly earns its nomination um because again oh my god this year sucks but i i thoroughly enjoyed what guillermo del toro crafted here and it isn't like an earth-shatteringly new story arc you know it, the, the ending i'm not going to say is super predictable but it's also not like hard to get to um but really being able to i think craft such a well laid out world and to really indulge in the storytelling i, I think in the way that he does with especially from a, a book perspective which is at times so difficult to lay out he really does a phenomenal job at painting the characters and their motivations so clearly without having to have giant exposition dumps or, or a lot of monologuing, you know, really, you know, there's a few monologues here and there, but he does such a good job at giving, at building characters that, and building sets as well, like his vision for what, all of his interiors and exteriors are supposed to look like is so much fun, which is why this film absolutely more than deserved its Oscar nomination for production design uh, and costume design production design. This film fucking absolutely deserves to win. I mean, my God, the interior of Cate Blanchett's office alone is worth the production design uh, Oscar. And really, I, I mean, to make such a, quiet movie in terms of how much the dialogue really like there's not a lot of vitriol in in language outside of specific scenes there's not a lot of explosive dialogue there's not a lot of like raunchy sex scenes like like the film really gets by on just moving you through the plot that's really it. There's not a lot of deviations into things that we would normally think of as being way more exciting, like a lot of death or, or a lot of sex or uh, uh, a, an Ocean's Eleven style heist kind of voiceover thing. It really relies on almost nothing else outside of the show. And that's really, really hard to do. I think he, he nailed the the cinematography aspect of kind of constructing a, a gloomy, really like neo film noir look to it. 
And I think that he also managed to have the film be very, very 1940s without being cartoonish, which is so easy to do when you try to do retrospective work and create either a period piece and especially a film like this, which is not just a period piece, but it's also a period piece done in period style and not having that feel like you're aping it, which would be so easy to do because anytime you try to ape anything, it's very easy for it to look like a goof. And instead, this feels like he made it all up when it's an homage. And that's, again, that's really fucking hard. You know, like this movie could have easily been as goofy as the Dick Tracy movie starring Al Pacino. And instead, it was a real actual movie. And it, I, I keep saying it, but that's tough to do. So I, this probably isn't going to be a movie I rewatch a bunch of times, but I, I've i seen it twice, both times. Really liked it. I mean, I can't disagree with you that the actual creation and... Um, oh, what's the term? Um, basically how the film was laid out, how it was made, how it was done. Uh, the execution of the movie was fantastic. That's never been a complaint I've had with Guillermo del Toro movies. It's just the plot that just does move slowly along is moving slowly along. And there just hasn't been anything. And part of me, for, part of this for me is just the reputation of everything. I Every time I watch a Guillermo del Toro, del Toro movie, I just don't get drawn into the story. And it's just, it's a great little plot that kind of trudges along and never gets bogged down, doesn't really have anything exciting to draw you in or anything to make you stop watching. It just, I don't get drawn in in the first place. And that's a me thing. I know that's a me thing. But I, I don't know, like the characters were great. You got a lot of depth into them. Nothing really changed from those characters beginning to end. You got what you got at the beginning, and that was kind of actually I can't even say that. Kate Blanchett was the exact opposite of that. Um, but I just I can't love this movie for anything other than how it came out visually and how it came out as a production because I couldn't get into the story. I couldn't get into the meat and bones of it. Well. I, I would push back that, that saying this is a Guillermo del Toro story issue. He did not write this story. This is a book. Um, so if anything, take your complaints to, uh, oh God, whatever that guy's name was, William Lindsay Gresham. That's so his problem very for much you. alive and very much available for my complaints. Oh yeah. He definitely didn't die <laughs> like 70 years ago. Um, and I also would push back on the idea that people are exactly who they are at the beginning as they are at the end. Um, because Rooney Mara is not. That's the easy one. And Bradley Cooper is, but that is also the, oh, I mean, the point of the movie. <laughs> the point of the movie is that he is a destructive person and his egotism and his seemingly like internal sense of manifest destiny and his hubris becomes his, his end. That's, you know, that's the point. Um, so yeah, he is the same guy at the end, at the beginning as he is at the end, because uh, yeah, what were you expecting? Well, he had nothing, to, he wasn't going to learn. That was the point of his whole rise and fall, you know? 
It's the same thing as uh, as like like Citizen Kane, you know, like uh, um, uh, what's ever Charles Kane? Is that what the uh, main character's name is? I forget what the Kane was in Citizen. He's the same guy at the beginning of the movie as at the end of the movie. He was a dick when he was young. He was a dick when he died. That that is the point. It's about the rise and fall of 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 the man's legacy, of the man's life, not about uh, internal growth of some kind. You know what I'm saying? Completely understand. I'm just, I'm not going to compare this to Citizen Kane. Well, that is wildly redactive of the point I just made. <laughs> I know what you're saying. I know the entire plot revolves around a grifter being a grifter through and through, and Bradley Cooper being the exact person he was from the opening shot to you know essentially the closing shot. But that really just never hit home. I, I'm hard to argue against the actual creation of this film. I'm purely just speaking on my enjoyment of it. And I, oh, I don't know. Well, let's get into the, uh, the plot me. a little bit, uh, just to you know talk a little bit about how the movie actually goes itself. Uh, the film starts off with kind of like, this one really, instead of being a three act structure, it, the way I think about it anyway, and yeah, there are multiple, you know, there's more than two acts, but it, the way I think about it for me is there is a prologue, act one, act two, and then an epilogue. Our prologue is Bradley Cooper uh, burying his father under the floorboards in his house. That's the cold open to the movie. A lot of intrigue. No, I no real context for it. You find out the information I gave later. He then burns down that house and goes and joins a carnival, which brings us really into the A plot, which will consume you know about the first half of the movie, where it's really just Bradley Cooper kind of wandering into a carnival and just being like, you guys got a job. And not even that, really. He doesn't Bradley Cooper doesn't say a line until we're like nearly 15 minutes into the movie uh, and really just kind of gets brought into the, the the family of the carnival because people kind of in, intuited that he needed some assistance. Uh, and then the A-plot really is just him learning tools of the trade for a mentalism act and falling in love with Rooney Mara before the two of them eventually run away together. Um, so for, for the A-plot, because, I mean, it, it's really... Without, I mean, I'm assuming you didn't read this book. I didn't read this book. Uh, without knowing where this movie is going, it was an interesting ride because I kept waiting for there to be the turn, you know, where there would be uh, his eminent rise or some dramatic befalling. And obviously, there is something dramatic that happens near the end of his tenure in at the at the the carnival. He ends up killing. The, the man who showed him how to do the mentalism thing. But it, it really is a lot of stage setting, I guess I would say. I don't know, what was your thoughts on the, the carnival part of it? Uh, the thing I probably got into most in this movie was just, okay, this is pretty cool how they're showing this carnival work. You know, the... I mean, it's hard to talk about what Bradley Cooper was doing when, I mean, what he doesn't say anything until he confronts the geek in the funhouse where the geek aspect was genuinely pretty cool. Just 
learning about how that's broken down and, and what that really is. And, um, I mean, outside of that, it was, I mean, it's hard to knock just watching this carnival specifically operate when it's built and portrayed the way it is. So, I mean, I don't have anything in depth to say about the, the carnival acts themselves, but fully enjoy it. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting to get a glimpse not only into uh, the the carnival life, but also there's you know a lot of period stuff with this. So you're also witnessing kind of countryside '40s lifestyle, you know, because like this carnival, it seems like anyway, is located where it's located for quite some time. Whereas nowadays, carnivals are usually in town for maybe a week, maybe two, and then they kind of just go. But Bradley Cooper seems to really like learn the mentalism thing over some relatively extended period of time. So mm-hmm. it's uh, interesting in that respect. And also you get a feel for these, you know, old school radios, old school bathtubs. You know, there's a lot of interesting table setting with it. And then seeing um, again, kind of like the, the behind the scenes stuff, getting Willem Dafoe breaking down the geek stuff is, is really unsettling and you get a lot of you know Guillermo del Toro flexing the the horror muscles a little bit with you know the the hunt for the geek. really anything to do with the geek stuff is very much so just a straight up like Silent Hill horror movie um, while also giving you the ability to kind of see how Bradley Cooper becomes who he ends up becoming by going through the the studying portion of it instead of sticking to something a little more trite like a like like a montage you know like some rocky style training montage you know getting him to see really and and the amount of foreshadowing that also goes into this what with the the geek monologue the um oh god what's the name of the the fuck i i need to look up the name of the guy i can't even think of his goddamn actor name um hold on No, not Defoe. The guy that taught him everything. Oh. Um, Tony Coletti's husband. Yeah, I don't remember his name. God, I can't fucking think of his name either. Hold on. Hold on. We're going to get to the bottom of this. Pete. Pete. Dave, Dave Strather. Um, when Pete really kind of like also foreshadowed the idea of you don't do spook shows, you know, and did this whole big thing on like the, his watch with his dad and and all that, all this stuff. I mean, it really like, it also felt in some of those scenes, almost like an old school uh, Sergio Leone Western. You could just, you could feel the dirt on their skin. You know, you could like feel the sweat on their brow. And, and it, it really I mean, you just felt so much so in the scene with not just the uh, production design and, and, and uh, the, the performances, but, but also, I, I mean, like th- just the way that the silence really filled the room. You know, there was a lot of really, I thought, great moments in those early bits where I'm not even, if there was a score, I didn't even retain it because they, they really let you kind of just sit in and understand your, your physical surrounding, which was nice. Again, it, I can't say anything against the actual, you know, Corn, I don't need shot. you to say like, anything <laughs> against anything 
literally saying, and this is not this is not the the me convincing you the movie was good podcast. That's what it feels like. This is the let's talk about the movie podcast. <laughs> so that then brings into the B story. Eventually, uh, Bradley Cooper and Rooney Mara. Who Rooney Mara, man. If there was ever an industry plant that needed to be removed from the industry, holy shit, is it Rooney Mara who does accomplishes nothing Wet in this blanket. movie? Oh my god, she's awful I mean, in this. You know how like we talk about like actors that come in and absolutely steal scenes? I feel yes. like she disappears from the movie she's in. I forgot it was her. Dude, I saw this movie literally less than two months ago and just saw it again like last week. I in that time completely blocked her out of my mind. She walks into a scene wearing a gown covered in blood in the middle of the night, pretending to be a ghost and is the least impactful thing in that scene. I know. Oh my God, dude. She, she barely exists. It is wild. So anyway, we then get brought into the B scene or B, uh, the, not the, the, the uh, act two, which is Bradley Cooper is now a successful mentalist he is still together with Rooney Mara they live in a very fancy hotel where Bradley Cooper performs mentalism tricks he then uh, meets Kate Blanchett when she does a little test on him to introduce him into some nice clients who are looking for a little bit more and here we get some of that vulnerabilities the the concept of the spook show that's introduced earlier coming at you right out of the gate here in act two as Kate Blanchett is like I've got a spook show for you that will pay money um, and that's when we get the big twist of the movie, which is that it takes place in Buffalo, which no one saw that coming. I must have completely missed that. Yeah, that's the big that's the big reveal is that the rest of the movie takes place in Buffalo, New York. When do they talk about that? Uh, it's made mention somewhere in there, but that's also why it's snowing an aggressive amount. I just was like, all right, it is Chicago. It is. New York is whatever city you want it to be. <laughs> Northern city. Here. Yeah, it's secretly Buffalo the whole time. Well, it might not be that secret if they tell you about it. I know. That was the big Shyamalan twist, uh, Buffalo. But anyway, so the, the remainder of the film, after you meet the Cape Blanchett character, is Bradley Cooper going over to... Um, uh, Richard Jenkins's house uh, again. Richard Jenkins, Ron Perlman. These are some Guillermo del Toro staples, and lying to Richard Jenkins for money to inform him about uh, a woman that he, I guess, killed back in the. Well, I guess the era would be tough. Eighteen hundreds, probably based on the years, um, and. That ultimately leading to, I guess, the ending of the movie that we'll talk about for uh, a moment. But what do you think about the idea, or it's at least its presentation, of what we end up seeing as the spook shows? Because they get talked about, you know, really just in warning early on in the film from, uh, you know, the Peter character who's like, don't do spook shows. And he just kind of leaves it out there to linger. We don't get an explanation of, like, really what that is. And then we actually get to see two different spook shows like pretty early on in, in the act two. So what make you of uh, what we see for the spook shows? Uh, I still really don't get why it is such a major taboo. I mean, yes, he warns that spook shows never work out, 
don't do them. And then we see him do them and he fucks it up. But I don't think any part of that was unavoidable. I mean, you do a spook show, you do a spook show. It worked in the show if he just chose not to be greedy with his choices and trying to continuously push it privately. I don't think it would have been an issue whatsoever. I think it was a false warning. I think it's fine to do spook shows if you're not, not dumb about it. Well, and I, I think part of it is that one, it is more difficult of a lie than just the usual parlor trick thing that he does in what I can almost assume is literally a parlor. Um, this I don't know what else you would call that room he was doing it in. It feels like it's a parlor. I don't really know what parlor means, but we're gonna go with that room as a parlor. Uh, and then because you know, then it's like Richard Jenkins going like, "What you 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 talk to that that guy's dead dead kid? You can't talk to my dead wife. What the fuck's up with that?" And then you have no explanation for that. But really, it it is that his ego got stroked, and Cape Blanchett facilitated him taking a job that he could not fulfill um, because she knew he couldn't resist fucking it up. You know, if he, if he played it smart. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure he could get away with it. People have heroin habits for decades, but uh, still probably not the best thing, you know? Yeah. I'll hold firm to the, uh, you're just a dummy, dummy stance. I'll take it. I mean, Jerry Garcia did hard H for like 40 years and only well, only died at the end there when he switched vendors. So, you know, you got me there. Yeah. Yeah, I know I do. Piece of shit. So anyway, yeah, the movie goes on he then performs a uh, what's the word for it? Uh, not a seance, uh, a showing fucking uh there's a, um, there's a word he used. It doesn't really matter. Uh, materialization of the dead of the dead woman, which then led to a brutal beatdown uh, where Bradley Cooper ended up squeezing teeth out of his fist and man shivers. I hated that. It was so, so gross. Um, as Richard Jenkins jaw dissolves into nothing. Big old escape scene, which was hilarious, might I add. Where uh, with the with the men's bathroom scene with Rooney Marge kind of wandering in it, if that was a better actress, <laughs> that scene would have been even better. But it was still funny with just her. Uh, and then we get to the actual big reveal of the movie, which is that Kate Blanchett really set. Dick. Yeah, she she set Bradley Cooper up the whole time. She had kept all the money. She had. Um, made sure that there was there was no nothing linking her to him, nothing linking her to facilitating him to anybody else, because really everybody that could have said she facilitated the, uh, that relationship is dead. And uh, there's nothing tying them to, together directly. So she was able to frame him as someone breaking and entering and attempting to assault her all in the name of I don't like what you do. I don't like you. Go fuck yourself eat shit and die, uh, which really was quite, quite a turn. You know, I never really took it as it was her setting him up from the beginning, just that 
oh, it kind of worked out that I was covering my bases. All of this other stuff honestly kind of worked out for the best. Um, and I do hate you. So I'm going to go ahead with it. Like the husband and wife who, you know, the murder-suicide of the uh, right at the end of the movie. I mean, I don't think she had any heavy hand in pushing no. that through. No, she didn't. And I feel like that would have really blown this. Or I guess not, because she's just a therapist. But regardless, and it that in of itself doesn't move the needle much. But yeah, no, I will she, say she uh, she sucked. And she, she definitely uh, facilitated the mm-hmm. whole town because that's part of the whole thing. Is uh, they they make mention of the idea that you have to uh, turn down some money to get more money, right? Right. That's exactly what she does to him too, because he offers her a, a, a big cut from uh, one of the the thing from from the early one, I think, uh, uh, from the first one with. Um, oh God, I'm so bad at, at characters at actors' names. The woman who's in like every indie movie ever made. Uh, the wife from Step Brothers. Yes. I don't know. God, what is her fucking name? Here. Oh, it's killing me inside. It is Mary Steenburgen. Yeah, yes, yes. Her. The woman who I always want to say is Catherine Keener and then it's not. Um, <laughs> Mary Steenburgen. Like, um, he, Cape Blanchett turns down additional money from Bradley Cooper for the, the Mary Steenburgen one. And you know, that is the application of the idea of you have to turn down money to get more money later on. You know, the, the reeling in, so to speak, of the the the, the mark. Uh, she's absolutely set him up from from the get go. Uh, yeah, you got me there. Yeah, and I think I think she knew that because I think she also knew that what was going to be asked of him in the um, in the second mark the 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 second round with richard jenkins was going to be impossible and he would meet his demise uh, much like and uh, again going back to the many layers of foreshadowing in this movie the idea of, of breaking in a uh, a geek is that you know you you reel them in you give them a little bit of a taste of what they need and you, you lace it with opium she gave him a taste of what he wants with money and not then double that shit down with a fuck ton of money uh, you, you know, she 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 wrote him. She broke him. I do have a question. Very small question. Uh, did she introduce him to drinking and he kind of took it and ran or was he drinking from the start? And that was a cover. No, she she, she introduced it to him. And then, you know, he gets on a train joins a bunch of other hobos and ends up the movie ends with him going to a carnival talking to the carney head carney the chief carney the the main carney the biggest carney uh, and saying can i have a job and then he pulls the exact same speech that willem dafoe told him carney's used to bring in geeks on bradley cooper asking bradley cooper if he wanted to be a geek and bradley cooper ends the movie by laughing very uncomfortably while saying uh, I was born to be a geek, which was sad. Uh, 
And it really sat on that moment for a long time, which was uncomfortable in a good way, in a way that it was meant to be received, but still uncomfortable. Uh, yeah, I will definitely say it was uncomfortable. I, I don't know. I saw the geek coming from a long while off, and I think oh, yeah. that kind of ruined the portrayal at the end. I feel like if they buried that a bit more, if you can even, which I, I won't try and get into whether or not you could, because well, shit, man, I don't know. I, I don't think this movie needs you to not know that that's where it's because if it needed if it didn't want you to know that's where the movie was going, there wouldn't be the, again, many, many layers of foreshadowing <laughs> that there are in this movie. The movie foreshadows that that's happening aggressively. Like, it's not like they're not trying to hide it. You know, it's Which really is why the I don't idea... want to argue against it. It's just, it's not something I would ever think it needs. I just always like seeing that. Oh, I can't even say that either because when it's done poorly, it's fucking awful. Well, it's the idea of seeing a progress, seeing the progression versus n- not knowing how something's going to end. You know, like there's there's no great way to predict that Kevin Spacey is Kaiser Sose at the end of U- the usual suspects. And that's part of what makes it really, really good. But if we're being honest with most movies, you and I watch in our day to day lives, we know how they're going to end. There's no Marvel movie that doesn't end with the world eventually being saved outside of, I guess, Infinity War Part One or whatever, um, which is, again, just the setup for the sequel. Uh, th- there's very few. I mean, think about the number of procedurals. You know, they're going to usually get the guy. Very rarely does the, the person in the hospital die. And even when they die, it's like, okay. eh, well, 25 percent of these fucks die anyway. So, like, it's not that big of a deal. Like, you're, you're in it to, to, to see how the story unfolds, not necessarily to get caught off guard by the ending. You know what I'm saying? Touche. Yeah. But yeah, if if you were looking for a, a, a twist, I can see how this is disappointing because the it's it is not hard to spot. But uh yeah I don't think this movie lives or dies by its various twists. But it is it is quite a ride. Are you surprised to not see Bradley Cooper get Oscar nominated for it. And I'll only say because it is Bradley Cooper in a movie that got nominated for best picture. Um, I, will, I think he deserves it. I will say yes. Um, I mean, look at the other guys on the list. Bradley Cooper over at Javier Bardem. This point, Easy. Yeah. Like it's hard not Easy. to put him on there. I don't think it was a, you know, something I would ever push for winning, but I definitely think it would get the nom over. I would have no Andrew Garfield was great. We'll see. I guess it's going to come down to a Benedict Cumberbatch and an argument about Will Smith. I still think this is probably Will Smith's award to lose, but I would absolutely have put Bradley Cooper here over Javier Bardem, but whatever. I really like Denzel Beth. Uh, he'd be my second. If I wasn't going to give it to okay. Will Smith, I'd be giving it to Denzel. But I really liked Will Smith in that. Um, yeah, but Denzel's movie was black and white. Denzel's movie was in black and white. Uh, anyway, so I guess that's it. We really worked our way through it. 
Uh, do you have anything else to, to say about it, or do you want to give a final rating and review? Just don't watch this uh, over breakfast. I don't know why solid, you would watch any Guillermo del Toro movie over breakfast. They're not, they're not good uh, No. I was hoping I'd at least be able to finish breakfast by the time it got into it, uh, but no. Uh, can you give me yeah. give me some stars. Uh, three and a half. Yeah, uh, I like this movie. It is long. It is two and a half hours. So if you're going to watch it, you really have to have the time. Um, Too long and- for this movie. I'm fine with two and a half hours. This was pushing it. I, I honestly, I think that it's fine. I just also think I, I, it feels like anyway, the most recent, a lot of the recent longer movies, two and a half hour long movies have had a lot of fight scenes because they've been Marvel movies or, you know, something where there's been a lot of action and breakup. This really has to be, this is a very specific mood you have to be in for this. This is not just like a, this is not point break where you just be like, hey, fucking point breaks on. I'm going to watch point break. Um, it's, this is not that movie. Yeah. Tried once. So I'll tell you uh, what, on I'm, a bit of a tangent, uh, I was super excited to find out Batman was essentially three hours. Yeah, apparently it's super, super duper long. But yeah, I guess we'll get there when we get there. But yeah, it's out. I'll we'll get to it eventually. Um, I, I give it. I give it a four. I, I'm pretty. I'm pretty. Mm in between three and a half and four. This is a good movie. I, I think it earns its best picture nom this year. Um, I'd be hard pressed to argue for it for other years, depending on the class, but um, it's, it's certainly well done. Uh, I very much so appreciate it on technical level, which is again, why it, it got nominated for almost exclusively technical awards. Uh, but it, it is, it's, it's not going to be something you rewatch especially at its length. I'll put it that way. So you sure. All right. Let's take this into the land of uh, the Royal family with Spencer, which was directed by Pablo Lorraine written by Stephen Knight. This film stars Kristen Stewart, Timothy Spall and Jack Nealon. And guess what? I don't know anybody who was in this movie outside of Kristen Stewart and Sally Hawkins. Shout out to Sally Hawkins. Fucking love Sally Hawkins. Was thrilled to see her in this. Um, this film had an estimated budget. Oh, do we have it? Uh, of 18 million. And a, a supposed cumulative worldwide gross of 21.5. Although this is, again, currently a HBO Mac, no, Hulu release, so you can stream it for free. So it's tough to know uh, the exact figures, but even by just those figures, it is successful, which really honestly is saying a lot. Most of the movies we've looked at recently have not even had that. So um, kudos, I suppose. The film is currently, oh, does it have a tagline? I didn't even look. Uh, no. No, good. It also really doesn't need one. This film is currently nominated for only one Oscar, but it's an Oscar we especially care about, so we make sure to put it on our list. It is currently nominated for Best Performance by an Actress in a Leading Role for Kristen Stewart, who plays Princess Diana in this movie. The film is about uh, during her Christmas holidays with the royal family at the Sandringham Estate in Norfolk, 
England, Diana Spencer, struggling with mental health problems, decides to end her decade long marriage to Prince Charles. Uh, this was technically my pick, so I will get started. Uh, Corbin Heller, I got to say, I did not like this movie even at all. Um, really did not enjoy this as, as, as a motion picture. Uh, I thought Kristen Stewart was wonderful. I thought she really captured the presence of Princess Diana. And I thought I kept thinking of a conversation you and I just had the other day about how when some people make physical choices with their characters, it is so clearly them emulating a real person like with Mark Ruffalo and Foxcatcher. And that is exactly the vibe I got with um, Kristen Stewart with Princess Diana. She really had like this walk and the way she kind of like carried herself with the shoulders. Uh, a lot, lot of shoulder work for Kristen Stewart in this movie that I thought really captured just my, my small visual understanding of Princess Diana in motion. I never well, realized I, something so specific could be so unique to one individual person. Like right? I have never once looked at somebody's shoulders when I'm talking to them, but if she wore a paper bag over her head, the entirety of the movie and all of the names were changed. Story was changed, whatever. She was just there in a random film. I'd be like, oh, that's supposed to be Princess Diana. Yeah, it's, it really it is incredible. Is. Yeah, I thought she did a really phenomenal job. But I got to say, top to bottom, T to B, I, I, I hated this. I really did. I thought visually it was quite terrible. And I felt like mm. almost like it was someone trying to emulate the way that they know Princess Diana, which would likely be on TV from the 80s and 90s. And that's the vibe they went for with the, the cinematography, which I got to say is terrible. Uh, it really is a visually terrible movie to look at. Hmm. Uh, and additionally, I thought the writing of it and some of the visuals to try to understand the mental situation Princess Diana went through was awful. I, I think that especially coming off movies that have dealt with mental issues, mental health issues so much uh, recently. And I think I was thinking especially of the father, which we talked about last year. Um, this movie just fucking blew it. I, I mean, we're talking about uh, again, just to compare this to the father for a moment, two films that both dealt with kind of slow burn progressions through mental health and through uh, an episode in, in someone's life and where one really made use of the space they were in and creative visual techniques to paint the picture that they were going for. And this movie really didn't at all. And up until the point at which we see Anne Boleyn in the, the, the dinner scene. And then again, later in the rundown house, I honestly was struggling to understand that that's what the movie was trying to get at. Uh, because it it really didn't seem for, didn't for me balance the intricacies of what it was trying to communicate very effectively. Uh, I, I I did I did not like this. Uh, what 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 did you think? Uh, I was I enjoyed it visually from a technical perspective, from an artistic expression, which I think was the majority of what you were getting at with the camera work where just the way they chose to use the camera on and about I guess their portrayal of 
I thought technically it was fine. I enjoyed, you know, I thought it was a positive, um, net positive for the movie. I just, I didn't like the actual artistic choices with it, especially in Borland. I, I did not, I thought that was uh, supposed to be um, uh, what was, what's his current wife's name? Camille? So, what was it? Whose wife? Camilla? Charles? Oh, dude, I thought no that idea. Was, I thought Anne Boylan was supposed to be her for the first, like, two or three times they showed her. Yeah, they really didn't make that super. I, I, it was really almost a blink-you-miss-it kind of thing, mm-hmm. especially with how these people dress already. Exactly. And the way that she wore the pearls on her headdress, I thought that was genuinely like, oh, Dana got a necklace, Camilla got this fucking shit. Okay. I get, I get what they're showing there. And it's like, oh, no, that, that is her going schizophrenic. Got it. Understood. I don't think she's ever once been diagnosed with schizophrenia, right? Like it was purely just an eating disorder and I guess anxiety. Yeah, I, I, I would think that the, that the, the um, visions would be tied into probably a malnutrition type of thing that would make sense if they kind of dug into that at all yeah that that, that's me doing some work for the movie by by guessing there yeah i mean i don't know it this was kind of just the kristen stewart show for me i kind of was thrown off by how intense the opening scenes were with just the camera work and audio but once i kind of got the gist of okay that's just kind of what they're going to be doing i'm just here for chris and stewart it just kind of smoothed the ride out for me well i i think i also i I had a hard time really getting what the movie was getting at i I also don't think they really did a, a great job portraying what they wanted to portray for princess diana like the the movie to me sent did a really bad job of establishing what they wanted you to learn about her character. And I, I think that's partly because probably part of that's me part of that's because I don't know anything about princess Diana. And, and part of it's that the movie really doesn't do a good job of showing you, I guess, any type of progression from her. So like the movie starts off before you go, her, I'm assuming like me, you were expecting an actual biopic. Honestly, no, I had no real expectations. Uh, no, honestly, yeah, I probably was expecting more of a biopic. You're, you're right. I probably was. Because that's um, what took me, that's what really threw me off was just this is nothing close to what I expected this to be near. Okay. True. Uh, so the movie starts off with Diana being driven to the estate and her stopping and saying, uh, that looks like my dad's coat on that scarecrow and then she goes and gets the coat now when that scene happened i thought to myself oh that can't literally be her dad's coat there she is probably being i I, in my mind princess diana is kind of like a goofy person and was very lighthearted for the position that she held which was what added to her charm and her intrigue and she is having some kind of fun here or maybe it even did remind her of her dad's coat and 
she also, you know, a few scenes later makes a gesture out into a field and says, I miss my house. It was over there. And I thought, again, she, she doesn't literally mean her house was over there. Like she's probably gesturing in the general direction. Like maybe she's pointing east and her house was loosely east of here or whatever. And then eventually well, the movie just kind of drops on you like, no, that's literally her dad's cone. And yeah, no, her house is literally right over there. And those were supposed yeah. to be kind of dramatic. And I, I, without any context, that did not land for me at all. I've sat on Wikipedia for a good majority of this movie, just like looking this stuff up about her. It was like, oh, no, she literally grew up on that property. That's yeah, she... which... Sorry, go ahead. No, there really wasn't anything left. Which is like, do I need to know that coming in? Because that's a weird thing for me to have to know. Because to me, without knowing that, those scenes felt relatively lighthearted. And I felt like they were shot and played to be a little bit lighthearted. But then when she actually goes into the house and there's a literal house that actually was her and it's super run down, I was like, oh, my God. Like, instead of me thinking to myself, wow, this is a crazy emotional moment for her. I kept thinking to myself, oh, they were being literal the whole time. And then when she ends up actually seeing like Anne Boleyn in the house, I, I, I'm, I'm like, how how severe was was this house and its importance to her? Because I, I thought she was fucking joking the whole time. Like, like go ahead. I guess thankfully I had looked that up as that scene started or prior to that, um, and got to miss that. Well, and it also made it a little bit confusing to 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 have to watch because when you see Anne Boleyn, it it feels like the movie wants to do a few things. It wants you to show that she is malcontent in her current lifestyle, which is understandable because we on the outside know how oppressive a public facing life can be. But at the same time, it feels a little bit like, oh, she's so rich. It's so hard. Um, it also wants you to show that she has an eating disorder that is affecting her ma- mental capabilities. And it wants to show you a little bit of the eroding mental capabilities. And it also wants to show you a little bit of a longing for her simpler life that ties into all of those things. And it that's a lot. It also wants to show you the fact that her marriage is eroding and it wants to show you how she's handling motherhood. That's a lot of things that it really doesn't balance very well. Because then the other thing is when she's walking around the house before she sees Anne Boleyn, like the concept that Anne Boleyn could even be there is not in my mind because I'm like, okay, okay, she's yearning for what used to be here. And then when you see Anne Boleyn, she goes, no, 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 no. She's yearning for what used to be here and her former self and is also experiencing a psychotic break at some point. And it's that's not a seamless transition between those two ideas for me. They did not handle those two things very well because it seems like she's settling into a remembrance where the house is going to magically transform into what it used to be in her mind, or you'll have some semblance of like an, uh, an interactive flashback almost. And instead it goes, Oh no, there's Ambulin. Yeah. See her. She's right there. And it's like, Whoa, Whoa. Like what are we trying to accomplish with this scene? And the thing is, that's the whole movie. The whole movie is a series of things happening that really have like at least two readings of them. And the movie never really nails down what you're supposed to be getting out of it. 
to the point where it just kind of meanders. And there, I the don't, Elder Ring of movies. It is the Elden Ring of movies. Ah, uh, because like, I want to know what you think. The end of the movie, when Diane, you know, bursts in front of the guys doing hunting, and was like, "I'm taking my kids," and she's all crouched down like they're gonna shoot her. I'm not leaving until I get my kids. Give me my kids. I feel like she probably would have done that right when the movie started. Like, like that didn't feel like a moment of change for me. Like who she is in that moment felt like who she'd been the whole movie. Like I I wouldn't expect anything less from her. Yeah. I mean, the only difference is now we think she has schizophrenia, like start to finish. If they were, if they got into, oh, this is all happening because of Charles cheating on her and just finding out, or you know, which things. I almost missed that. <laughs> I almost totally I only knew that. about it. I only knew about it because I actually looked it up before we started the movie. Dude, like, it was like a throwaway line. Yeah, and it's like what I feel like that's the entire premise that you need to know going in. Like, that's something you mentioned when she stops for directions. Like, show it on a TV. Okay, we're good. We're good. We know what's going on. This is just like, oh, Diana's crazy because I guess it's, she doesn't want to get weighed. Okay, that's pretty embarrassing. Okay. What's going on? You don't know any of the outside factors causing all of this. And it's just nothing is gratified with reasoning and so you're just kind of left just like hands up like what's going on that end it doesn't really get a lot into that like the scene in the billiards room where they had that little talk had like no emotional weight because almost every scene before that they weren't together and i mean there was barely really any conversation about their marriage and then everything after that kind of the same thing like not a lot of conversation about what just happened in there to the point where it felt like the concept of divorce was really just shoehorned in there to have another thing like i get like the okay he was never around that's an issue okay i can see that i can understand that but the whole premise of like you being so attached to him connected to him like there's nothing showing that at all other than he's a someone who doesn't exist okay it, it didn't add any weight to it and i would argue it's the exact same thing maybe to a slightly lesser extent because we do get a few more scenes with the kids but like there was uh the scene when um christian stewart locks herself in the bathroom and the kid who plays uh i think prince william is the older one i don't really give a shit uh yeah. He knocks on the door and he says, uh, Mom, you told me to tell you when you're acting crazy and you're acting crazy. First off, that is a that is a heavy line for what is like a 12 year old. And secondly, that line exists. That line has so much backstory. That line has so much backstory to it that we do not get any of. And it's it it's really again like the the divorce scene. It's really thrown away. When would that's, you argue that 
Sorry, go, go ahead. ahead. Finish no, 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 no. You, no, no, no. You go ahead. Would you feel like this is the second movie in a trilogy? Oh my God, I would absolutely argue. Yeah, that is that is exactly right. Because you're missing all of the backstory and you're missing all, all the of, fallout. Exactly. You are just. This is the worst empire you can make. Yeah. Yeah. No, that is exactly what this is. Are we going to get that or you think they they have a Spencer series lined up? She signed on for three films. <laughs> oh, God. The trilogy nobody asked for. Better trilogy than Twilight. Well, hey, good for you, Kristen Stewart. You got your Oscar nom. But because like even just to harp on one more thing, it, I really do not think that they did Diane well here. I'm not trying to you know, say that this is uh, the actual woman of Princess Diane's fault. I think this is the filmmaker's fault. Because one of the other things that really bothered me about the movie is that, you know, Diana is kind of having a, a, a small argument with the governing body of the royal family? Question mark? <laughs> Don't really get how the interior politics of the royal family works. Not that I care, but man, they didn't elaborate on it at all. I don't know why she had to listen to anybody. And she doesn't want to wear one of the dresses. She like she keeps wearing other dresses, right? And it's a whole big thing, and it's adding to her stress, and it's adding arguments to with, with other people and all this stuff. And then she's talking to one of the elder women who, I don't know who these people are, the queen, I don't fucking know, who cares? And one of the elder women with like a knowing smile was like, they're trying to get you to wear the dress. <laughs> I almost never wear the dresses they give me. I pick my own dresses. And the scene was clearly meant to be like, a, don't worry, darling, you do whatever you do, you're fine. But instead, it, it, it felt so much so like, then why is Diane worrying about this? Like, if, if, if the other royals don't give a shit, who is she even revolting against? Is like, Major what, what's Gregory the, point the major villain of this film? Right? Is he the one calling the shots? But that's what I'm saying. It's like, like, what are you rebelling against then? If the other royals are seemingly cool with what you're doing in the dress aspect of it, there's no consequences. There's no real pushback outside of one guy. Like, and they build so much on the back of these dresses for it to just kind of be dismissed in that one scene as a fucking who cares? You know what I mean? Like, like they threw away all that setup. All of it was worth nothing. Can we trade Rooney Mara and, um, oh God, I forgot her fucking name. Kristen Stewart? Um, thank you. Kristen Stewart and just give up on Spencer and just throw it all into Nightmare Alley. I would also like to shout out, honestly, the most hilarious scene because of how much it did not fit in the movie at all, <laughs> which is the scene where Sally Hawkins is like, hey, so we're glad to see you. By the way, I'm gay and I love you. You don't have to love me back. Just putting it out there. Uh, have a good life. <laughs> yeah, oh, that scene was like, wild. <laughs> that's something where, like, if that was real and a, based off a real character, it's like, oh, that's that's a funny anecdote to add to this story. Probably didn't need to include it, but they did because, all right, sure, whatever. Like, oh, that's funny that that's the way it was. But seeing as that's just a made-up random character. Why? Why that? Also, that's Why not the, that, anything else. 
that's the interaction at the end of the movie between two major characters in the movie. And instead, Sally Hawkins is in the movie for like five minutes of the first 20 and then gets fired. And you do not see her again until she goes, I love you. I'm gay. You don't have to love me either, though. It's all good, bro. <laughs> like, <laughs> what? who are you? <laughs> Why are you here? It was such a nonsense Wait, scene. Is the fallout from Diana not loving her back what pushed her to start having sex with a fish? I think it's all fitting in together now. We're, we're putting these pieces time, together. Time is a flat circle. Like I really thought the movie was going to end with like Diana was gay the whole time and I just never knew that and that's why she was super cool about AIDS. And uh, goes off and fucks Sally Hawkins for the rest of time. Think of the heel turn and how great this movie would be if this just rolled into the ending of Thelma and Louise. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God, yeah. Oh, I love it. Directed by Ridley Scott. Oh, I love it. (laughs) Actually, speaking of the ending, the ending of this movie also was a little bit of a head scratcher for me. Uh, it ends with, uh, you know, so so Prince Diana collects her kids and they go gallivanting off into the sunset and they pull up at a, uh, a KFC of all places because Diana mentions earlier in the film that she really likes fast food because it feels like normal people food or whatever. And, uh, you know, they place their order and all that. And they ask her the name for the order. And Diane says, Spencer. Have you ever been asked for your name for an order at a no, drive-through restaurant? Not once. What the fuck is that? I I immediately thought was just thought, okay, I guess fast food wasn't that fast before, and they just don't have it ready for whoever drives up in the middle of the English countryside because there's no way that's happening today. But. Uh, why would they ask for an, if if there was going to be an exchange of information, which there would not be for a drive through, which is a sequential system. Oh, it's yeah, not like the like, people are all out of order. You're, like not you're going in a inside. line. Yeah, right. But if there was going to be any information exchanged about which order was which they would say, great, that your total will be 1733 order number six, pull up to the next window. What order number were you six? Here's your food. Like, they're not going to ask your. You want these minimum wage workers to not only take your order, make your food well, presented to you, but also have to remember your name? This isn't Starbucks. Well, you have to remember, this is 1980. Those kids could afford to buy a house with those wages. That wasn't minimum wage. That's true. Not minimum wage like we know it today. Uh, as you Man. went into that, or as you were going into that, uh, I pictured this movie doing a 180 into Thumb and Louise and instead of going off a cliff it's just them driving into the tunnel and I lost my shit so Uh, much better it'd be such a better movie oh my god yeah the middle finger right at the end just sitting in the theater just like oh you thought this was a psychological horror film no 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 black ass satire let's go as dark as you can get it yeah because you know what? This, this really shouldn't be a movie. It, it was tough to tell the geography of the house was very confusing. Uh, the passage of time was wonky. Um, I also 
I had to Google when Boxing Day was to even really place this in, in the, the, the calendar year, uh, which I know is, again, an American thing. I know it's an American thing that I don't know when Boxing Day is, but it's like, I don't fucking know. Uh, like, there's so incredibly much that happens in this movie that all all very subdued, too, I should say. This, this film really forgoes melodrama, but I think in the worst way. I really think some some added melodrama in terms of presentation anyway, would help you understand what plot points were being achieved. Because oftentimes so much dialogue would happen very much so just kind of informally that I, I wouldn't even really retain it until there was a, a shift or a change or, or, you know, something relatively dramatic happened later, which again ties into the visuals of this because it's presented so plainly. It's, it's, it's I, at times I found it tough to be like, wait, is what just happened important or, 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 or fucking what weird. It's a weird movie. Yeah. But Christian Stewart was really good. Sure. Yeah. I, I really also, I really thought that the kitchen staff would be more important based on how much they seem to be shown in the early goings of the movie. And then they were not. <laughs> I was like, Oh, we're uh, going to see this chef a lot. And then we just saw, don't. We saw more than Charles. Yeah, but that's not saying much. They're like, oh, they're really, husband. they're like, oh, you know, they're really showing this chef, like whipping this staff into, into shape. Like he's giving directions. Like, I don't know what he's really going on about, but like, this seems like important stuff. Like we're probably going to be in this kitchen all the time. Nope. One more time in the movie than never again. I mean, he was literally in it more than the main antagonist of the film. So, which we're still not sure who was the main antagonist because even Charles, who you would think would be the main antagonist, was like really at the end was very resigned, just like, all right, fucking whatever, I'll fuck somebody else. Just total wet blanket of a person. Yeah, like such a British way to respond to it. But guess what? That's not a good movie. Hmm. Imagine with every, <laughs> imagine being conf- confronted with like something really harrowing that the movie has been building up with building up to the entire time and the main guy just goes, yeah, all right. Yeah, okay. I don't want to upset mommy. Oh, yeah. yeah, well, yeah. What are you going to do? This this movie is just one gigantic eh, with the shoulders. Eh. Eh. Anyway, I, I got nothing. I'm burnt. I know you'll strike me down for this, but I gen- like sitting in the seat I have on my couch and watching the films by the end of it, I if you ask me at the end, gut feeling, no in-depth other than enjoyment of the past two hours you just spent, I enjoyed this more than I really. Digging it's into it, take. significantly worse movie, but just like mood at the end. Just like, all right, cool. Yeah, that was fun. All Dude, right. Story, you were great. Pretty colors. Sure. All right. Well, let's uh well, I guess we'll wrap this one up too. Uh final raise and reviews. This was my movie. Technically. So I'll start. This was not good. This was a bad movie. This was a really this is a movie I I would not have watched if Kristen Stewart was not nominated for an Oscar for it. And that's really the type of movie that when it's bad irks me the most. Because it's like, how could one part of this be so good and the rest be utter shit? utter shit so this for me is uh this is a two 
I will never return to this. And this is going to be one of those movies where like 20 years from now, they'll be like, you know, oh, yeah. Remember Kristen Stewart? She has she was nominated for like three Oscars. I know the second two. What's that first? Spencer. Spencer. Is that? Oh, these aren't good reviews. This is a weird movie. It'll be a forgotten movie that only gets revisited because Kristen Stewart continues to be successful and good. Uh, and this movie gets buried in the annals of film history because it is not good. Um, yeah, two, two out of five. Not great. So I said at the time, I feel no reason to fight that. How many stars do you have in it? Oh, I said three. Oh, I didn't hear you. Trace. All right. All right, well, those are the movies from this week. So we're slowly turning our way through the Oscars and Oscar nominees. We are picking up the pace a little bit so that we can make sure we watch all the ones we care about before the awards in a few weeks. So this week, this upcoming week, we'll have three movies on the docket. Um, so in no particular order, and since we have three of them, well, it won't be the traditional picking system. So next week's films will be uh, The Power of the Dog, which will be on Netflix. Drive My Car, which can be found on HBO Max, and West Side Story, which can also be found on HBO Max. Uh, those are the three movies for next week, so make sure you check them out beforehand or not. Not my problem. And uh, we'll keep it moving before it's time for awards season. Corbin, you got anything else before we get out of here? Uh, no. All right. Well, if you want to follow the show on Twitter, you can do so at Juicing Pod. If you want to uh, send emails, no, at Big Screen Juice. Sorry, Juice and Pods, the sports show. Follow us on Twitter, at Big Screen Juice. If you want to send emails to the show, you can do so at juicingthebigscreen at gmail.com. If you'd like to follow Corwin on Twitter, you can do so at Corwin Heller. If you'd like to follow myself on Twitter, you can do so at Joshua D. Tracy. And uh, until next week, y'all have a good one. Yeah.